Hello and welcome to episode one of Hosted Payload, the satellite and space law podcast. From Washington, D.C., I'm Henry Gola. It's February, it's cold, the groundhog saw his shadow, and we just had our first Sunday without football. So what a perfect time to cozy up to a new podcast. Hosted Payload's going to have two parts in the orbital debrief. One of my Wiley colleagues will tell us three things we need to know happening in the world of satellite and space law. Then, in the transponder, I'll chat with a guest about a space movie, TV show, or song that we've watched again. Today, that will be Mike Carlson of Amazon Kuiper, and we'll discuss The Martian. But first, let's bring on Chloe Hawker of Wiley for the Orbital Debrief. All right, welcome to the Orbital Debrief portion of the podcast. Joining me today is stand-up comedian, improv aficionado, and attorney (laughs) in space and satellite, Chloe Hawker. Chloe, thanks for joining us. Excited to be here. So this is the first time we're doing this. This is this is really exciting. So it could go one of two ways. It could be like a segment everyone in the industry is talking about. Or it could be a complete flop. So no pressure. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Excited to give it a shot. All right, good. Uh, so our first item up for the month is uh, that the FCC is currently taking comments on a notice of proposed rulemaking seeking to streamline the application process for satellites and Earth stations. Sounds super exciting. Um, a government agency looking to improve speed and efficiency Seems like something industry can can get behind. Doesn't seem too controversial. Uh, what is the FCC teed up here in this item? Yeah, I think everybody is excited to see this. Uh, the NPRM really has four key proposals, and we'll focus on two of them, which are about the content of applications. So one of the proposals would allow consideration of satellite applications that don't conform with international frequency allocations. The other uh, proposal would allow operators to have multiple licensed but unbuilt NGSO systems in the same frequency bands, which is also prohibited under rule right now. So what does unbuilt mean? Does that mean if I'm designing something and I'm in my, you know, satellite uh, bunker building a satellite and I, you know, put some screws in, is it now built or is it something else right now under FCC rules? Well, so that's been the subject of some debate. Um, SpaceX, for example, has made arguments that having one satellite up should be considered built. There's also been consideration of whether it should mean they've hit one of the build-out milestones. So I think this is kind of one of the questions industry is uh, wrestling with right now. So built does seem to me in orbit and operating currently, but but industry might want to be pushing on that as part of this rulemaking is what you're saying. Right, right, exactly. Okay, so why is this important? Why is why is it important to have to have more than one system be unbuilt at the same time in the same well, frequency course, band? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, as the space economy kind of continues to grow, obviously operators want the flexibility to be able to experiment and iterate and improve their systems. And and right now, you know, the rules are really kind of from an era when this process there were way fewer players in the game building way fewer systems and so this is really a recognition that as this economy continues to boom um, we want operators to be able to have flexibility in how they're creating their systems and how many systems they're trying to create gotcha okay what else is teed up in this item 
So they've also teed up a couple questions and proposals about the FCC's process for reviewing and granting applications. These are important issues for commenters. It's all about improving speed and efficiency, but they don't translate particularly well for a podcast. That's good. You've taken to heart that you don't want this to be a flop. So that's good. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Comments on this NPRM are due March 3rd. So that, that is coming up. All right, cool. What else do we have? So the Office of Space Commerce recently released a request for information on what basic space situational awareness services it should provide to operators under Space Policy Directive 3. Congratulations on getting out that mouthful. That was a lot. So (laughs) it sounds like in very basic terms, in layman's terms here, satellite operators want and need to keep their satellites safe and avoid collisions while they're up in orbit. And the U.S. government wants to know what information would be most helpful for this purpose. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And according to a 2018 presidential directive, the government has to provide some basic space situational awareness data to the public and to satellite operators. And so they want to know what's out there, what's available in industry, and also what would be most useful to industry as they start providing these services. Gotcha. And this program used to be with DOD, right? And now it's with Office of Space Commerce. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that's exactly right. So responses to that are due February 27th. All right. Busy month if you're writing comments. Uh, What's our third item in the orbital debrief? So our third item for the month is some fun... more general space news. So NASA has validated the testing results from its first full-scale rotating detonation rocket engine, or RDRE. Um, Again, sort of a mouthful. (laughs) Always need to add a couple of more... couple more letters to our alphabet. That's good. I'm I'm glad we have more acronyms. (laughs) So the RDRE is viewed as a serious step forward for deep space missions specifically because they produce more power with less fuel than the kind of engines that are typically used today. So an RDRE could move bigger payloads while adding less weight. Does that also mean it can go farther into deep space than Right, exactly. Yeah, because they would need to carry less fuel. Um, Gotcha. So the engines used to actually function, the engines use a supersonic combustion that's called detonation. So it's just basically using explosions. Uh, and the testing showed that the engine would create 4,000 pounds of thrust, and it withstood 622 pounds per square inch of pressure on the inside of the engine on average, which is the highest pressure rating a design like this has ever received. Wow. Okay. And interestingly, the hardware on the RDRE was made using 3D printing processes. So it's kind of amazing that it has that kind of durability. Holy moly. Okay, cool. Now, I I know you've flagged the actual project name here. Can can you give that to us? What is it? (laughs) Yeah. So the project is managed and funded by what I think is the fabulously named Game Changing Development Program in NASA's Space Technology Mission Directorate. So that's a a pretty fun, uh, pretty fun program name here. No pressure on them. It's only you have to change the entire game <laughs> right. by whatever you're doing. Okay, so what's the next step? So the next step is for NASA to develop a fully reusable 10,000 pound class RDRE, which for reference would be about in the range of a mid-sized rocket engine. So there's still a ways to go before these will be taking us to Mars, but it's a very cool step forward. Okay, so if it could take you to Mars, would you go? If you were offered I would the totally chance, go. Yeah, you would, I totally would totally go. go. <laughs> I All totally <right>. would. <laughs> Interesting. Would you? 
Uh, no, but I'll be talking about that with my next guest, Mike Carlson, when we review The Martian. So stay tuned for that. Oh, can't wait to hear it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Chloe. I really appreciate these three things and the orbital debrief. Yeah, thanks, Henry. All right. Back on Hosted Payload, welcome Mike Carlson. He's corporate counsel at Amazon's Project Kuiper, where he leads a team advising on domestic regulatory issues. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Henry. Thank you for having me on the inaugural or near inaugural edition. Oh, this is the first edition. This is big stuff. You were the first ever guest. Um, and uh, lucky you, we're not going to talk about domestic regulatory issues today unless they relate to the movie the Martian, because that's what we're discussing today. So, and this is uh, recommended by you. In fact, you're the one who suggested we we rewatch this movie from 2015. Uh, yeah, and I'm sorry for not picking something more timely. I, the Alien Alien was on my list. Uh, I really wanted to talk about a new book by the author uh, whose book inspired The Martian, uh, Andy Weir. Which is Project Hail Mary, but we settled on we settled on the Martian, and and I think I have a good a good basis for for picking the Martian here. Nice. All right. So the Martian, 2015, directed by Ridley Scott, written by Drew Goddard, based on the book, as you said, by Andy Weir. Star-studded cast: Matt Damon, Jessica Chastain, Best Picture nominee. Damon was nominated for Best Actor. Goddard was nominated for Best Screenplay. It's got a 80% on Metacritic, which is really good. 91 on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm going to give a small synopsis of the plot, and then we can get into it. Small group of astronauts on Mars abort their mission due to a giant storm. They leave the planet and their colleague, Mark Watney, played by Damon, for dead. Except it turns out he's not dead, and he must use his wits to stay alive long enough to be rescued. So Mike and I rewatched this movie. What's your verdict, Mike? Petition to deny or comments in support of the oh, Martian? Co comments definitely in support. And, and even even your list of the cast, I think if you go a little farther down the, the billing, you'll see that it's just stars up and down. I mean, Jeff Daniels as NASA administrator. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get past him being uh, whatever the name was of his character in Dumb and Dumber and just accept <laughs> NASA administrator. Great performance. You've got Donald Glover before he sort of became what he is today. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Sebastian great. Stan, who played Tommy Lee last year, and Pam and Tommy. Yeah, there, there you go. I would have to pull up Wikipedia <laughs> to go any deeper than, than Jeff Daniels, but but yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> really, a, really a great movie. And it has all the elements of a of kind of a good space movie, including a, a plan so crazy it just might work, kind of risk-averse bureaucrats, um, kind of trap the trapped alone theme um so it, it just has everything why'd you what, what 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 stands out to you about this movie what'd you like the most about it i think in a lot of the space th this sort of genre of space movies like interstellar the martian i like the I, i'm not a scientist but i'm sort of science adjacent as, a, as someone who works in satellite policy and i i appreciate the kind of attention to scientific detail to make it at least plausible and so i think that the and if you read um andy weir's books you'll see that he he does this a lot he kind of really belabors the the science like the science of how you could grow up mm -hmm. for example and that it's right. kind of explained in a movie in kind of an like an oddly detailed way or how he makes water um things things like that so i think that's that's what i really appreciate the attention to detail there um 
and then the speech at the end, I think, is what really, really nails the movie for me. Speech, speech at the end was great, and you're right about the science. And you know, as people who are satellite lawyers, uh, you know, it was cool to recognize when they were talking about TT and C. And they were talking about the comms and backup comms. I was like, oh, I know what that is. That, that's good. I, I understand that. But you're right. There's there's a big scientific uh, background to it. You know, they're talking about the distance to Mars. They're talking about how long it would take. Uh, that factors in a lot to yeah, the movie, right? It takes them eight months. Yeah, eight months to get there, which apparently is apparently is right. Although, again, not a scientist here, so I'm accepting that that, that a lot of correct. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the, the Martian garden, I think the one thing just in reading kind of reviews from actual scientists about the movie, the one thing that is not realistic is the, the kind of event at the beginning of the movie is there's this big windstorm, right? And that, that's what causes the kind of chaos that, that causes the crew of the ship to leave and then Watney to be left behind. And, and apparently in Mars, because they have a much thinner atmosphere, if you had, you know, a hundred mile per hour winds, it would be like a, a you know, you could barely fly a kite or something. It wouldn't. It wouldn't have caused the chaos that it caused. So, oh, so the, okay. We could ignore that for the moment. Interesting. Oh, the, other, the other piece, um, just for kind of space nerds, is that the way he reestablishes contact with the Earth is by finding the Pathfinder probe. Right. You know, left on Mars in 1997. So <clears throat> it's the year 2035, and he's somehow able to find it and, and turn it on and reestablish contact. Yeah, no, that that was that, that was that was super cool uh, for, from a communication standpoint and from a space history standpoint. Uh, do you know uh, trivia question? Do you know where they filmed the Mars scenes? I don't. I, my guess would be like Arizona. That was my guess too. But I looked it up. I looked it up before we talked, and they were filmed in in Jordan in the Middle East. That makes so, sense. Yeah. So, and apparently, he uh, Ridley Scott also filmed Prometheus there, another space movie. Uh, in 2012, and then and then he thought it was such a great lo locale. He returned there for this movie in 2015. Yeah, so. Prometheus. This is the this was the genre I originally wanted to go with, which was horror in space. Prometheus <laughs> is like the not the latest, but it's in the Alien series, right? That's right. The... Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, so one of my observations was that uh, this is the second and probably last one we'll see Hollywood blockbuster where the movie's sole purpose is trying to rescue Matt Damon. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah, you might not see you might not see the sole purpose being to rescue Matt Damon as, as much anymore, but no, I agree. And, and also like the whole genre of one person being trapped, which when I hear that that's the plot of a movie, I just am, am kind of turned off. It just sounds like on its face boring. Like you have, and again, not being controversial, but like James Franco and 127 Hours, Sure. Mountain climber. Stuck. Yeah, no, th th there's that one. And my wife is the same exact way. So uh, she's always like, is this going to be like Castaway? And I have Castaway. to argue and I have to argue yes or no. This was not like Castaway. And I feel like it wasn't because he had contact with folks. Right. And there was also the other side. Like in Castaway, there wasn't like a whole subplot of them trying to rescue them. It was just Tom Hanks on an island. Uh, there's also that movie where, did you see that movie with Tom Hardy where he's just driving in a car for two hours? I, no, I haven't seen, I, I was going to say that there's, a, there's a Ryan Reynolds movie called Buried where he's just, it's just him buried in a casket and, and I, <laughs> you know, that's the same, but no, the Tom Hardy one, 
I'll, well, I'm, I'm going to put it on my not watch list, to be honest. Yes. I yes. don't watch movies where people are trapped. Yeah, my wife hated that movie, and she brings it. That's like her second example of like, is it like Castaway? And is it like that Tom Hardy movie? And so, <laughs> so yeah. that's why I watched the Mar. That's why I rewatched The Martian by myself because I didn't remember. But I could have told her, and in, in retrospect, it was not. So it's very, very, very watchable. Um, one thing I might have changed. Um, and I don't know. You, did you did you read the book? You you read the you read the source material here? No, I didn't read the book. Okay. Although now because I watched the movie first, I that's my other thing. I if you watch the movie, oh, it's hard. Know. It's hard to go back to the book, even when the book is better, right? Um, right. It's hard. It's hard to go back because you know what's going to happen. But I, I figured this was a leftover from the book. You know, Jessica Chastain is two years older than me, right? Um, but she's listening to disco. I didn't. I thought that was odd. Right. Couldn't they? I thought they might have given her like 90s boy band, like for the same effect. Right. But she had disco music and she's not old enough to have liked disco. So I thought that was odd. Was it was it like modern day disco or was it was it actual like BGs? Because I'm, I'm thinking like in the year 2035, maybe disco comes back. Maybe disco comes back. You're right. Because it is 2035. So that's true. And then what they, I guess what they really could have done is had music from like present day that Ridley Scott didn't like. And then, well, <laughs> and then in 2030, the, the cycle for music is things come back every 20 years. So I'm just, if you're doing the math, she should be listening to music from what, 2015. So right. Like, she, that's what I'm saying. She, cause she, like when the movie came out, they could have like panned whatever was, whatever was popular then that, that, that. The yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's a missed opportunity, I guess. But but I think that the like the scientific accuracy of the movie is is something worth investigating a little more. Just because I think that a, a lot of movies that I really like are movies that you can watch again and again and again. And there's attention to little details that you don't um, that you don't appreciate at all. And they just they just show the thoughtfulness that went into the movie. Right. And like the example that I'm thinking of is is like in Back to the Future when Marty goes back to like I think they they initially leave 1985 from the Twin Pines Mall, which like a lot of places is kind of named after a, a geographical characteristic of that place, and right. goes back in time to 1955 to the original farm where the mall was built, and he and I think the the farmer that is sort of at that site chases him with a shotgun and he he knocks over one of the trees, and then when he goes back to 1985, it's it's uh, Lone Pines Mall or Lone Pine Mall or some, something right. like that. It's like the movie doesn't even mention it. It's just a detail that has just been meticulously thought through. Yep. Uh, and I feel like there's a lot of that in The Martian. Yeah, there was. I liked I liked when he left the note in the rover, right? Because it was sort of like this, this like... Um, I mean, obviously the movie is very hopeful, right? There's there's plenty of space movies that go the opposite way that are just dread, right? It's it's you're on your own and at the the ending is not happy, right? It's the opposite. It's just like, you know you're in space it's over and and it really is over but for this it was hopeful with a hopeful ending but what i was getting at is he leaves this note in the rover for whoever comes next right because they are going to go next and then at the end of the movie you see that's the next mission's already happening and the folks who who were the astronauts are back on earth except for martinez who goes back up so yeah when when i think when he gets back to earth that the Ares four, which is the next mission to Mars that was going to take place like five, five years after it's yeah. just earth. And th- that was what he was going to have to originally wait for unless well, I'm, now we're getting, I don't know. 
do we have to give a spoiler alert for a movie that was released? I don't think so. I think if you haven't seen The Martian from 2015, you know, I, I yeah. You're not I mean, ever. I think we <laughs> yeah, right. of this review. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like the the, the Ares is leaving um, just as he gets back to Earth. He's he's saved by so in this another. I mean, another kind of feature of this movie that's worth exploring because I feel like this is this comes up in a lot of space movies is the there's a plan that's kind of put on the table that's just completely crazy but it but it might work i guess this is a lot of movies but space movies yeah. in particular like apollo 13 you've got the slingshot around the moon and here yeah. you have i think a secret chinese rocket and then a slingshot around earth to get to mars quickly well and what damon and they have to rip they have to uh get rid of all the mass on his mav for him to get up there and he goes up with a tarp and he blows a hole in his own suit to Iron Man, as he calls it, to hook up with Jessica Chastain while she's floating in a chair. So that's that. Well, this, they had they had me up until that. That was that was a little <laughs> totally <laughs> plausible, science, totally scientifically plausible up until then. The growing potatoes, the making water, right? But... That that all seemed fine. All right. So what? One last question here, and yeah, I know you have kids. I have kids. So one thing I thought about here and different that you brought up interstellar earlier is does the movie change if matt damon has a family or has kids right because often you'll see the guy who's trapped like an odyssey type right where he's trying to get back home to his family but here there there wasn't that it was just sort of him his brain and his will to survive but not not for some greater purpose it was really just about him what do you think? Oh, I mean, that's a deep question. But. It's a, it's a <laughs> question. I mean, I, I, I can I'll dodge that question because I'll say I can't can't opine on the you know the relative value of a parent's life versus a non-parent's <laughs> life or something like that. But I did think that there was something there about just the let's just call it irrationality of what everyone on Earth was willing to do and spend to save one person, you know, it would seem like right. certain death for the whole crew of, um, do we, do we, is it the Hermes or the Hermes? I can't remember. <laughs> well, if, if, if it's fashion, it's Hermes. I think if it's Greek mythology, it's Hermes. So okay. I, I think, I think we'll go with Hermes. Yeah, we'll go with Hermes. Way. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Hermes, you know, eight months there, eight months back, uh, you know, almost certain death, having to hook up to this sort of secret Chinese rock. Like there's a lot of irrationality involved but then you go back to the kind of irrationality of people in general when you have one one person who like child a child caught in a well like there's no amount of right. money that society will spend to save them and i think that you have the same thing with him but whether whether it would have been different if he had kids i think he would have been 15 pounds heavier uh, <laughs> <laughs> but other than that it's the movie and ready for a golf trip which i'm taking on friday so that's yeah. that's good <laughs> All right, Mike. Well, uh, your 15 minutes on the Hosted Payload podcast are up. I appreciate you uh, you joining the inaugural uh, journey here. No, thank you. Th this was great. Thank you for having me. And this is probably the end of my 15 minutes of fame, too. So <laughs> let's hope not. Thanks for listening to Hosted Payload. Thanks to Mike at Amazon Kuiper and to Chloe at Wiley. You can find us at wiley.law. Search for TMT.